Hello, and welcome to a very special episode of Get Me Another. Usually, we are a podcast that explores those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. But not today. Hell no! Today is the second in our series of Don't Get Me Another bonus episodes. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host Rob Lamorgis. And Chris, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single screenplay in possession of four credited writers must be in want of a story. (laughs) It is a truth. In each Don't Get Me Another episode, rather than talking about a blockbuster film or the movies that followed them, we'll be discussing a motion picture that missed the mark and that Hollywood subsequently shunned. A movie that might have been a trendsetter if things had gone a little differently. And, And honestly, I can't think of a movie that fits that description better than the one we'll be talking about today. Oh, yeah, no. I mean, they did everything on paper you were supposed to. Yeah, yeah. Today, we're going to be talking about a military-themed sci-fi action film from the director of Smokey and the Bandit and the producer of The Godfather. This is Don't Get Me Another Megaforce. From the director who brought you Smokey and the Bandit, Hooper, Cannonball Run comes the ultimate spectacle. Megaforce, an elite compact fighting unit armed with the most sophisticated weapons ever seen on a movie screen. The mission to preserve freedom and justice and battle the forces of evil. The good guys always win, even in the 80s. It was the summer of 1982, arguably the greatest movie summer in cinema history, certainly a defining one for the 1980s. Week after week brought classic after classic. Conan the Barbarian, The Road Warrior, Poltergeist, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Rocky III, Blade Runner, The Thing, The Secret of Nim, Tron, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Friday the 13th Part Three, and of course... E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Now, it is important to remember that not all of these films were necessarily hits in their theatrical release, particularly Ridley Scott's Blade Runner and John Carpenter's The Thing, both of which opened on June 25th, 1982, were not at first commercially successful. But both of those films, over time, would become acknowledged classics and would rank among the most influential science fiction films ever made. Opening that same day in late June of 1982 was another film that didn't do very well at the box office, despite a powerhouse filmmaking team behind it, Megaforce. I just like saying Megaforce, I gotta be honest. (laughs) Yeah, words, not deeds, you like that. And, uh, oh man, this was, I think, uh, by decree for the two months prior to its release, the back of every single Marvel comic book. Absolutely. Every single absolutely. Marvel comic. Absolutely. The, the D's with Ace Hunter pointing his finger at you. Yeah. yeah. It, a- absolutely. Unlike the two films that shared its release date, Megaforce became more of a cinematic curiosity rather than a classic. And we're going to endeavor to find out why. Uh, that said, we should mention at the outset that the films we talk about in our Don't Get Me Another episodes are not necessarily bad. In our first such episode, we discussed Ishtar, a film both of us quite liked. And I think and I think with Ishtar, we, we reignited 
uh, everyone re-examining Ishtar. No I hope so because yes. it's it's yes. it's so much fun. <laughs> I you know I th- you know I've, I've I've seen you know hashtag Ishtar on the socials of late. Uh, you know it's happening. Oh yeah, it's just it, you know it wasn't as big a deal as when we did our Halloween series and everyone rediscovered that movie. It's yeah. like um, do you remember the 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 Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons? Oh what a night! So, like sixty oh, three, yeah. and that kind of came back in the nineties. Like there was a while I did that. I was responsible. I did that. I I, I yeah. actively. That was me, and you know, working behind yeah. the curtain, as it were. Yeah, the Doc Martin's coming back around again now. <laughs> also, me. Yeah, <laughs> nice. we're we're restarting every trend. Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> honestly, watching watching this movie, uh, you know, and uh, and and uh, <laughs> you know, someday plunging necklines for men are going to come back in style, and I will be walking on sunshine. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> You've got uh, you've you've got the chest for it, my man. Megaforce was co-written and produced by Albert S. Ruddy, who had produced The Godfather, and directed by former stuntman Hal Needham, who had directed Smokey and the Bandit. Megaforce was a Golden Harvest production and one of a number of films the Hong Kong-based studio had produced over the years for the American market. Uh, we had discussed another American Golden Harvest production in our first episode of Get Me Another Indiana Jones: High Road to China, starring Tom Selleck and Bess Armstrong. Ruddy and Needham had teamed on another Golden Harvest production a few years earlier, the 1981 hit Cannonball Run, and the success of that partnership paved the way for Megaforce. Yeah, and I think if you look at the Ruddy-Needham connection, it's obviously Burt Reynolds related because Ruddy's movie after The Godfather, or one of them pretty soon thereafter, was The Longest Yard. Oh, okay. Burt Reynolds. And, you know, clearly Reynolds and Needham had a relationship even before Needham became a director. Right. Uh, back in the stuntman days. Well, they so are just... they are the, the, the template for, uh, for, for Leonardo DiCaprio and Brad Pitt's characters yes. in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. That is, you know, that's... Uh, you know, Absolutely. Rick Dalton and, and uh, what's the stuntman's, uh, it's... Uh, Clint, Clint Booth? Cliff, Cliff, Cliff Booth. Booth. Cliff, Cliff Booth. Booth. There it yes. is. Rick Dalton and Cliff and, Booth. Uh, but I just wanted to take a shout out yet again, and obviously Needham, the director of Smokey and the Bandit, but again, the cinematic giant that is unacknowledged, <laughs> Smokey and the Bandit Absolutely. changed cinema Absolutely. forever. Uh, even before it, before it was a movie, it changed cinema, and certainly thereafter. <laughs> Uh, no question. Now, for those who might not be familiar with Megaforce, you might be asking the question, what is Megaforce? Megaforce is a codename for America's daring, highly trained special mission force. Its purpose to defend human freedom against Cobra, a ruthless terrorist organization determined to rule the world. Oh, wait, no, no, sorry. That's not right. That's... That's that's GI Joe. Yeah, that that's GI Joe, and you can tell the difference because in GI Joe they allow the girls to do something. That's totally true. <laughs> yes. Let me try again. Yeah, Megaforce is a phantom army of super elite fighting men whose weapons are the most powerful science can devise. Their mission to preserve freedom and justice, battling the forces of tyranny and evil in every corner of the globe. There you uh, go. Uh, there you go. I got it. I got it. Um, <laughs> that is from the opening title card that appears at the beginning of the movie before Gerald Immold's score, which is fantastic, by the way. Oh yeah, kicks for sure. In. Uh, it is. It is. Uh, it's just a. It's an amazing '80s score, and it's just it's synthesizers wall to wall in a different world. 
in a different world, they'd be playing that with the movie at the Hollywood Bowl. Uh, There's no and, question. Know, every other summer or whatever. As part Absolutely. Of a- we should mention that, that the film has a card alerting the audience to the fact that it was filmed in introvision. What is introvision? <laughs> what is introvision? <laughs> introvision was a code name for America's specially trained high- That I believe. Introvision was a system of front projection where actors were shot in front of photographs instead of real sets. Uh, In some ways, it is a precursor to the stagecraft system now used by many movies and TV shows, also known as the volume. Um, And honestly, some of the shots, particularly in the Megaforce base, look pretty great. Um, And there are other things, and we'll talk about them, but like that, that, that don't necessarily look so great. But I think this is a movie that is genuinely reaching for innovation, even if it doesn't always quite get there. Yes, and this is going to lead into something that'll be a theme throughout, for me at least, because it pains me to say this, Chris. Yes. You know, this is a movie, it's gotten some cult status, uh, a lot of people, it's it's goofy, it can be fun, enjoyable, all of that. For me, it's not necessarily my cup of tea for a cult movie, just personally. And I, okay. You know, but uh, what pains me to say is that Hal Needham, who I love mm-hmm. as a director. Absolutely. He's the biggest problem. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. When you talk about the introvision, even that as being an innovation. My my thesis statement here is that Hal Needham, uh, and we've talked about this in past, uh, past ones, this is a movie that feels like it belongs in the 70s, yeah. not the 1980s. And in the filmmaking, yeah, and yeah. even the use of this new, uh, you're, you know, you're, you're having a, uh, uh, essentially a set backdrop that you can do cheaper, but do bigger looking things. Right. It's not that different from doing, um, you know, uh, a matte painting, frankly, right. it's just a set version of a matte painting to be, you know, you know, exactly. Truthful. And, um, the way that it's shot though, feels very like it's very old fashioned. Yeah. It's seventies. Like this is a movie that was made pre-Star Wars, filmmaking-wise. And he even tries to do the Death Star run at one point, and he can't do it. Like, like the Death Star run exists for you to copy, and he can't copy it. Yeah. And that's where I'm like, he's, he's stuck doing what he loves best. Now, in the beginning, uh, there are some car shots when they're zooming through the desert. I literally wrote down, oh, there's that old, like, pan, uh, pan and follow the car, and maybe a little zoom right. at the end sometimes, and you're doing it on the angle... Uh, with like your wider lens, so it's making the car look like it's going a little faster than it most likely is. Yeah, Hal Needham's in the driver's seat, but then quickly it all fall, <laughs> fell apart for me because it's he was just the wrong man for this job. I think. Yeah, and and I think I think you're right. It's and it's funny because the the we made a similar comment about the other American Golden Harvest production that we talked about, High Road to China, is that it felt like a movie, even though it came out in the wake of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, it felt like a movie that was sort of u- utilizing the filmmaking techniques from before Raiders of the Lost Ark. It couldn't, it couldn't quite, you know, it felt something closer to, you know, the man who would be king than than the movie that it most wanted to emulate at the box office, uh, if not in how it was made. We open in the fictional Republic of Sardu, uh, where what appears to be a power plant is under attack by a tank division, and the tanks are under the command of Duke Guerrera a mercenary played by Henry Silva. Uh, Rob, this is the third appearance in Get Me Another for Henry Silva. He played the villainous Kane in uh, in Buck Rogers in the 25th century, as well as Aegon in Alan Quatermain and the Lost City of Gold. And, uh, you know, again, Henry Silva, as always, 
doesn't hold anything back and he doesn't hold anything back here. And I kind of think it's, it, it's a delightful, I, I, I liked a lot of the performances in this movie, not necessarily all of them, but a lot of them uh, because they were kind of going for broke. Uh, oh yeah. Silva's going for broke. I, I like to now think of him as an, uh, at least at this stage of his career, he's an American John Reese Davies yes! because uh, yes, totally. they, they're constantly having him play uh, not his ethnicity. Um, and it, his accent in this movie though, there are times when it just, he's using his regular Henry yes. Silva voice, as far as I can yes. tell. And then there are times that he's not exactly sounding like he's from Costa Brava. A Costa Brava. the a yes. fictional Central American country. Yes. Uh, and so he doesn't quite sound like he's trying to do a Costa Brava accent, but it also doesn't sound like him. And I, I just don't know what's going on. <laughs> uh, it's... It's crazy. Uh, but, uh, but he is, Guerrero is a mercenary and he is leading tanks uh, from Sardoun's aggressive neighbor, Gamibia. And I, I love the fact, like before the attack begins, the Gamibian leader gives this long speech and some bullshit explanation for all this. And he sounds like he's supposed to be vaguely Russian. Uh, I, I, you know, honestly, I have no idea where these countries are supposed to be. The terrain would indicate the Middle East, but who the hell knows? But even Guerrera is bored listening to this shit and he just gives the order to start fire. Yeah. And so I think we can check off our our 1982 Ronald Reagan era U.S. movie checklist. Um, <laughs> bad yeah. guy, uh, Central American yeah. uh, general type, Duke, Duke. And then you also have, he's mixed up with the communism and the, yep. you know, with a puppet regime in either Eastern Europe or the Soviet Union. Unclear. Um, <laughs> they talk about uh, capitalist pigs or the bourgeois yeah, at then... some point in, in this opening screed. So, you know, you know who the bad guys are. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and apparently this is the fourth time in a month that Gamibian forces have crossed the border and attacked Sardoun uh, and and have and, and made it back before the Sardunians know what happened. And this frustrates Sardunian General Byrne White, who wants to attack. He wants to cross the border and attack Gamibia, but is told no by Major Zara. Now, apparently this is very interesting to me. Burn White outranks Zara because she's like a major and he's a, a general, but she's the president's daughter. So apparently she has operational command. That's such a shitty operational command structure. No wonder Sardoun is having that many problems. Yeah. And Sardoun, uh, although we don't know where it is geographically, where you would expect it to be, uh, it must still be a British colony given the general. <laughs> well, yeah, that was, yes, <laughs> is yes. It, is it flying under the Queen's flag? It's the, I don't know if you ever see the Sardunian flag. Or or have you ever seen have you ever seen a Sardunian president? No, even <laughs> though you would think no. you would in this movie. No. Uh, General Bird White is played by Edward Mulhair, who folks of a certain age will remember as Devin Miles, Michael Knight's boss on Knight Rider, a show that would start a few months after this movie was released. And Zara is played by Persis Kambata, who was Ilea in Star Trek The Motion Picture. And I'll I'll say it she looks equally good with or without hair yeah yeah it's true and he uh, i was very pleased to uh see the general the general's <laughs> face because i uh i watched a whole lot of knight rider but i have to say that 
in this film, the general winds up less like his character from Knight Rider and a little more like the, what, the chief of police in Police Academy is, is yeah. how it winds up playing <laughs> yes. to me. Well, it, it's interesting because, again, I want to come back to this. They may even mention later on when they're giving, like, the profile that he was born in Leeds, England, or Kent, England. I can't remember which. You know, Leeds or Kent, somewhere in England. And he's obviously English, but, like, everybody else that we see from Sardoon is sort of vaguely Asian ethnic. I mean, uh, Persis Kambata was Indian, and, you know, we see a couple of the guys underneath her. Uh, so I don't know. Did they just hire this guy to be the, the the head of their military or what? Or was it is a – it's very un- – there's a lot of ethnic issues unclear in this movie. <laughs> yeah, and, and a few that are very clear. Yeah, there's a few that are very clear. <laughs> Uh, with no way to stop Guerrera and his tanks, Burn White and Zara travel to somewhere in the Western United States to recruit the services of Megaforce. After flying on Continental Airlines, uh, they are driven out to the middle of nowhere and basically left for dead. Well, they they would have been dead because they weren't paying attention to the snake that took like 20 minutes to crawl up next to them. Uh, admittedly, Burn White was too busy whining about the journey to take notice of his surroundings. Yeah, something you'd expect of every general. And then that snake's coming up. The, uh, the general's complaining that they're in the middle of nowhere and what's going on when... Boom! Those That snake gets blown away and we get the arrival of Dallas, a member of Megaforce. Dallas is a good old boy from the South, played by Tennessee native Michael Beck. Uh, Rob, nothing says salt to the earth. Like a chewing tobacco T-shirt. Uh, I was gonna say, uh, or or says, uh, you know, programming for children, which yeah. uh, <laughs> clearly also was. Um, yeah, yeah, much. You know, yeah, so Dallas, you know, introduces. You know, the general is very skeptical of Megaforce. It would seem, despite traveling all this way to get their help. And, um, yeah, he's very dismayed by the fact that apparently Megaforce does not have ranks except for its commander, Ace Hunter, who we'll meet in a few minutes. But we all just call him Hunter, Chris. We just all call him Hunter, yes. Dallas does have one of the best lines in the film when he says to the general, oh, shoot, general, you know there's a big difference between rank and authority. That is as close to this movie gets as to profound, and, and it is. Yeah. But, but also, it's a cool line. And this will go into, if you look at a lot of the pieces of this movie, aspects of those pieces look pretty damn good. Yes. Uh, but when you put them all together as a whole, it it is lacking. Uh, I, I'm not going to say, this is not the worst movie in the world. By no means. Right? There's plenty of stuff that's fun in it that I could enjoy just as it was, right? Uh, uh, well, I know we'll get into the miniature work later in particular. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's some good, well, even though that, that, that opening attack on the, uh, on the power plant is really good miniature work. Yeah. Yeah. Right there with, uh, with, with Duke coming up. Um, although it was such a short sequence and which, which then gets me to, you do have all of the, some massive problems are easy to diagnose. Like you have an attack at the beginning. That's like maybe, a minute and a half that's really mostly talking and then they fire tanks once and destroy a, a, a model right yeah and yeah. i'm fine with that but then really nothing happens for an hour after it, like, it's like an hour of touring a base an hour yes yes nothing happens yes in the first 35 minutes nothing happens at all except touring a base and and putting down women and yeah, putting, putting down <laughs> women yes putting women in their place also happens yes and by women i mean woman because more than one would 
that would be a bit much, wouldn't it? Would it? <laughs> like, yeah. I, yeah. Well, so they, oh, I also, speaking of women, I have to mention that Megaforce has ultra realistic holograms as part of their, their technological arsenal. Uh, oh, I, I believe you mean the holograph. Huh, yes. Holograph. Yes. But before Ace shows up, Dallas entertains his visitors with this hologram of a girl on a beach. This will be important later. Kind of, I, I they do bring it back. They, they do they bring it back. <laughs> well, they all they all pile into a Ford Bronco where the 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 general uh, gets a little racist by asking a black member of Megaforce who's driving, uh, who's named Zachary Taylor, if he's listening to Gladys Knight and the Pips. It's like, oh, good God. You know, it's... The important thing there, though, is that Zachary Taylor has those awesome orange headphones. Totally. That were with the... I think those are the actual Sony Walkman headphones. Yeah, yeah. They uh, came with the, the original off. Sony Walkman. Uh, by the way, for the record, he's listening to Vivaldi. Oh, yes, yes. And uh, at first you think he's the egghead, but right. he's not the egghead. Even though he's he's smarter than the egghead, but there's a literal <laughs> egghead, yes. Uh, we soon meet Megaforce Commander Ace Hunter after he and two others do a little training exercise, Rob. little training exercise where they, they skeet shoot giant balls or balloons with rocket launchers attached to their motorcycles. Uh, the skeet shooting, like the train is awesome. Like it's... Stuff's blowing up. It reminds me of the little the smoke thing, the smoke effect when things are getting shot in uh, in Bloodstone. But it's even bigger, you know. It's great. It is, uh, and you, you know, I can look past that. The greatest military asset in the world is motorbikes. Like I can roll <laughs> with that as a conceit that the the <laughs> most tactical, effective weapon you could ever have would be. A motorbike. It's perfect. It's perfect for the time. But this is one where Hal Needham's direction, like some of these shots are, like all the shots are just a little too wide. Often, uh, and we complained about this before, and and like in the Smokey and the Bandit chases, this isn't the case. Um, I feel divorced. I don't know the geography. I don't know where people are headed or going. But it's not, and this is where I'm going to come in with, with my grand theory of Megaforce. Oh, please. So I'm disoriented and I, I'm divorced from what's actually happening in the action. But it's also, interestingly enough, shot like a 70s thing where everything's too wide and you're not cutting fast enough. If I am going to have this sequence in a movie that is this dumb, which is <laughs> fine, right? Yeah. You know what this movie is the proto version of. It is the proto Michael Bay. Movie. Oh yeah, I can see that. If you could give Michael Bay this exact same script, it would make a billion fucking dollars. <laughs> this if you start to look at this movie like it's Armageddon and you like oh, the wow. way the characters joke with each other and it's like not great but you know it is technically a joke. Right. <laughs> Yeah, no, you're you're a hundred percent right. That that's that's the missing piece I didn't come up with. Because yeah, it's it, it is it is it is it's a it's a proto Michael Bay movie. And it, it here's the thing about Megaforce for me is I have actually never encountered a movie that that actually did have its fingers on the pulse of what was happening in like popular culture at a particular moment, and then and then doesn't succeed in the execution in almost any way and therefore was a bomb. But it's like, if this movie had been made a little different, this could have been a huge hit. Like the, the elements, and we'll talk about them as we go through, but they have, they, 
They had their fingers on the pulse. They just didn't know how to read someone's pulse. Yeah. And, you know, instead of you, because you could make this movie and for families and want to sell toys to kids, right? Uh, instead of making the sitcom Family Ties, it feels like they made it at the level of Alf. Uh, and while Alf is a big hit, if you try and watch it now, it is it is tough. <laughs> it is very tough to watch an episode of Alf now. We soon meet the Megaforce commander, Ace Hunter, after after this training exercise. And, and I'll say, four years before Maverick would buzz the tower in Top Gun, Ace Hunter jumps over the Ford Bronco in Megaforce. And Ace Hunter is played by Barry Bostwick. Barry Bostwick is apparently cast after the producers saw him on stage in the Pirates of Penzance, and he kept the beard that he had for that production for this movie. He's got long, flowing blonde locks and a blonde beard, um, and you know, you oftentimes wears like a powder blue headband. Uh, you know, like uh, it's it's it, it's it's an image. It's a striking image. I gotta say, Barry Bostwick still my favorite George Washington a role he played in the 1984 miniseries George Washington and its sequel, George Washington II, The Forging of a Nation. Ah, those are some great titles for TV uh, miniseries <laughs> movies. But uh, the, we got to dive in here, Chris. Uh, yeah. So in this meeting uh, between uh, Commander Ace Hunter and Major Zara. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's it's there's there's some heat kind of. Well, yeah, sort of? if that if that heat is misplaced anger. Um, yeah, well, uh, is that because he <laughs> misplaced anger? Can he, he shows up? Um, and then because she is a major and involved in military operations and has all of her decorated medals, um, starts asking just regular kind of legitimate operational questions, which causes Ace Hunter to kind of like smack his lips as if he's looking at dinner, uh, <laughs> half half unzip. <laughs> His Megaforce spandex suit, which we're going to talk about in a moment. Well, yeah, well, yeah, we're going to get to the, the Megaforce costumes in a, in a few. Yeah, he's got to unzip, uh, half unzip to get the get the chest showing, and then he just really kind of proceeds to like I don't know, insult her, um, make jokes while the Megaforce team is like, "Ooh, target insights, baby." Uh, <laughs> He gets really mad at her and Huffy because she doesn't play along with it. And then he's like, fine, we'll go back to my base. (laughs) Um, Where he then proceeds to be even more of a dick. It's amazing. Oh yeah, no, there's there's no question. It's it's uh before they go back, I think before they go back to the base, I think we should talk about so there's another thing we need to talk about. Uh we should talk about the Megaforce vehicles because this movie loves its vehicles and and we see a lot of motorcycles and dune buggies and they're all painted with this sort of distinctive arrow motif. Like it's it's really something. And that said, I do wonder about the wisdom of mounting guns and rockets to the steering wheel. Good luck if you want to shoot in different direction than you want to drive. Like that's a that's yeah. a problem. Uh, I have to admit, well, there's clearly like a code of honor here uh, because like Duke Guerrero can only have tanks, right? So they have to they have to put the guns on the steering wheel to compensate. Uh, <laughs> The vehicles were designed by William Frederick, who had worked on Hal Needham's film Hooper, uh, as well as in conjunction with toy manufacturer Mattel. 
Uh, Mattel is also responsible for the film's costumes, and there is no credited costume designer on this movie. There's there's no Alan Smithy. There's no Alan there's Smithy no Alan credit Smithy for costumes. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, Mattel had ambitions to build a toy line around Megaforce. Now, a few years earlier, rival Kenner had incredible success with their line of action figures, vehicles, and playsets based on a little movie called Star Wars. The, the get-me-another-Star-Wars effect was very potent in terms of toys as, as it was in film and television, with every toy company trying to replicate Kenner's success. At the same time that Mattel was working with Golden Harvest on Megaforce, Hasbro was getting to ready to launch their military-themed toy line, G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, an updated version of the original G.I. Joe action figure from 1964, now resized at three and three-quarter inches like Kenner's Star Wars. Because even in the early 80s, you needed IP. You did! <laughs> They're like, we, we can't possibly make a new toy. Let's take an old toy no kid had heard of <laughs> and reboot it. That's safer. <laughs> to be clear, I'm not saying that one ripped off the other. The, the timing would indicate that this is a case of simultaneous invention. Two parties arriving at the same basic idea at the same time. But what, what I find interesting, Rob, is that Mattel never made a comprehensive line of Megaforce toys. They released a handful of die-cast metal cars as part of their Hot Wheels line, and only a couple of those were new castings. The rest were just repaints. Uh, but they must have had the notion to do so. Otherwise, why would they be involved designing the costumes if not as the basis for action figures? Yeah, and costumes that they could sell because clearly – they wanted the kid to feel that the costume was just like in the movie. Right. So they made it look like a bargain basement Halloween <laughs> costume in the movie so that that would be what they could sell. Oh. It's like, this is, and this is one where all the, um, some of the impulses are right, but you just go, you know, later on, all the superhero movies in our modern era, you start by, you know, with X-Men and, and Raimi's right. uh, Spider-Man in that era. Um, everyone goes, well, we can't possibly use ridiculous spandex costumes right let's make them look more militaristic so like the x-men are going to be in like vaguely leather like swat weird outfits or something right and here they did the exact opposite it's a military organization and they said no 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 no. i need to see bostwick's ass <laughs> you really do you really see it and i need to see so far up the crack of his ass oh my god only happen with a spandex costume those costumes are david bowie in labyrinth tight yeah. <laughs> yes like honestly they might be they might be ziggy stardust type frankly <laughs> <laughs> like, what was going on like nobody had eyes because the vehicle designs as you said the vehicle designs, while not realistic, are cool. Yeah. Like, and as I said, I can get behind dune buggies and bikes are the best thing you could have. Like, I'm, sure. I'm fine with that. I can roll with things, Chris. I'm not an unreasonable man. <laughs> <laughs> but those costumes. The costumes. Like, oh, my God. It's 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 amazing. I mean, now just to be clear on my GI Joker, I am not saying that uh, Megaforce could have outsold GI Joe had Mattel gone all in. Uh, I, we'll get to some of those reasons later because there's things GI Joe is a similar enough concept to invite comparison, and there's things GI Joe does much better. But I just feel like if if Mattel had put in a little more effort, Megaforce could have been the GoBots to GI Joe's Transformers. Yeah, for sure, and. And what's funny is everyone looks back on uh, Kenner in the early days of Star Wars, right? And then yep. even um, who, whatever, like Mattel, like or 
turned them down or whatever. Yeah, everyone turned them down, apparently. Yeah, And everyone's like, oh, and they didn't have enough toys and Star Wars was the biggest thing ever. Boy, egg on their face and they had to ramp up and blah, 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 right? Like, oh, terrible business decision. They were waiting to see if the movie was good, which is clearly also (laughs) what Mattel did here. And it was the right call. Could you imagine if they had made like Star Wars amounts? Like, oh, it'd be amazing. And and all of that wound up in the landfill with the ET Atari game. Like, <laughs> like it would have been oh, it, people would have been fired and this saved jobs. And I also want to mention it's interesting because you know every every toy company was looking for their their answer to Kenner Star Wars and Mattel eventually found it later in also in 1982 with uh, and, uh, uh, with a piece of of non IP with a Masters of the Universe that was just a completely new concept. There was nothing that it was based on, and that became you know that became Mattel's answer to the GI Joe. It was the the Masters of the Universe line, which still still goes today. Which for years was the. Uh biggest selling toy outsold star wars dollar wise for a couple i think a year a couple years in the middle 80s and then it crashed very quickly it was it burned hot and bright but the toy thing's interesting because they even put the line in the movie when the general is getting toured around Mm -hmm. the base and they're in the vehicle hangar he literally says these are awesome toys uh And I was like, yeah, that's clearly the idea. It didn't wind up happening, but like, it's so clearly the idea. Oh, God, it was all there, but they didn't, they didn't go ahead with it. Um, yeah, they all go back to the Megaforce underground base, the pit. Oh, no, sorry, that's G.I. Joe again. Uh, they do go back to Megaforce's unnamed gigantic underground base, which is enormous. It's apparently seven levels and 10 million square feet. And I'm just like, who paid for this? But we're told apparently the free countries of the world. $40 million in mops. <laughs> whatever it was. <laughs> they, 40, they, 000, they apparently yeah. the free countries of the world give up their best soldiers for Megaforce. Apparently they give up a significant portion of their GDP to fund Megaforce as well. Which we'll get into, but it's it's clearly a black box operation that has not been democratically approved no. budget-wise by anyone's actual populace. No, um, no. And so we're going to we're going to come back to that thread later. But uh, also they talk about is scuff scuff, the Supreme Command United Free Forces. I think that's the organization is that, that, that with the, the organization it. running running Megaforce scuff. It sounds Supreme like a bad guy Command from Get Smart. It sounds like the evil organi- an evil organization from Get Smart. Oh, we got to go up against Scuff this time. And you know what uh, it also sounds like is there is a series of children's graphic novels called Investigators about alligators who are also super spies. Really? And they work for an organization called SUIT, which is an acronym <laughs> for, I believe, Secret Undercover Investigative Teams. And they wear vests, very exciting spy technology. And this is where, like, this movie is for children. <laughs> I, it's for children and, and not the particularly smart ones. Uh, <laughs> like, oh, my God. Oh, we're going to get letters. If anybody wrote letters to us, we'd get them now. Uh, no. uh, they, yeah. they do mention, by the way. Love, I know people love this movie. I'm And I get why. I get why. I can see why. Yeah. And I, I was hoping for something where it was, you know, be like a treasure of the four crowns or even like an arc of the sun god yeah. where I just have that moment of like, oh, my God, this is amazing and ridiculous. And I didn't quite feel that. I was just like, it's ridiculous. Uh, it, it is. It, it's what, what amazed me most is just how close it came to actually getting it right, but 
then you know, then you have you know uh, uh, Barry Bostwick in the the tightest pants possible, and I'm like, uh, is that for kids? I don't know. Working for Scuff, which Scuff. Uh, for Scuff, which also is an organization that has later on. This is what I was gonna. I'm just gonna get to it now. Get to it now. Scuff. Let's do it now. Do it live. You remember the part in the Dark Knight when uh, yes, Morgan Freeman's character reveals that essentially there's no privacy in Gotham and it all goes to Batman's computer and Batman has to use it to fight the Joker, but then he explodes it in the end because no one can have that much power. Right. Yeah. Uh, that power in the early uh, term of the first Reagan administration is presented yeah. as exactly what uh, the world needs. Because Scuff has uh, a computer profile on everyone they deem important to track in the world. Everyone they deem important. And they can listen to every conversation on every military base in the world hostiles and friendlies yeah they they reveal they have the file on the general and like oh yeah we're tracking you and i'm like duke guerrero was right these <laughs> are bourgeois fascists they need to be taken down Chris. duke guerrero was right duke That's guerrero and brother jonas need to team up and take down these supposed good guys oh, who are ruining our world Chris, <laughs> we what is we going do on? we do we do spend a lot of time in that first half hour just touring the Megaforce base, um, and you know we 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 get uh, yeah we Zara is given like a guest room which looks like a suite at a Japanese love hotel circa 1985. It's all pink and there's mirrors everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Or a weird Buck Rogers set uh, came to mind. Oh, like, yeah, it be, yeah. It could be on a spaceship. Um, <laughs> but so, like a kind of cardboard looking one. But but she, you know, and as much as Ace Hunter, and, you know, kind of gave her, gave her a hard time, she likes him enough to undo as she's waiting for him to show up to take him to, 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 to take her to dinner. She undoes that top button, you know, just enough. So that when he arrives, there's a little bit of heat. Um, and, you know, it's interesting. I, I think it's interesting that Megaforce is entirely comprised of men, while the Sardunian military has men and women. And and Zara mentions she's often in the field with her troops. And I just, I love his line, combat alfresco. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I Megaforce, it's, it, yeah, Scuff and Megaforce, they only want men to work. Yet another reason to take these fascists down. <laughs> they do everything wrong. Like, are they secretly stealing, and they're secretly funneling money from all of the world's democracies to fund, like, rogue Blackwater organization? <laughs> you give, when you put money in the little box, you know, the box for, like, you know, kids' charities, that sort of thing at the at the Seven Eleven. No, that's going it's right going to Mega Megaforce <laughs> and Scuff. Uh, that said, I I have to say, I love I love the Megaforce dress uniform. It's like it's this blue suit with like a red triangle folded over the left breast and a powder blue ascot. It is a it, and again, this is a perfect example of like they had it, it like they had tapped into the zeitgeist but they didn't know how to interpret it. Cause it reminds me of those great Starfleet uniforms from Wrath yeah. of Khan with the, with the, with the thing you pull down over the, the, but you know, like here it doesn't like, it looks ridiculous <laughs> in the best way possible to get into it. The fabric 
in those Starfleet uniforms is top not like yes. that is those are great that is great costume fabric where they spent where they spent you know clearly good money on it this is cheap ass fabric so even though the design is is actually like kind of cool it's a little ridiculous but i like i like that but the fabric itself is low end cheap thin yeah. you can see it but the design is uh what tim gunn would call a soul stirrer <laughs> um, this is a sweatsuit alternative chris that you could wear out to dinner i mean I, it is amazing i want i want to have these made um and and so we, they can become the official get me another uniform if we ever do live shows we do that completely in the <laughs> megaforce <laughs> dress uniform uh that that is a life goal right there and uh when they meet in this scene because <laughs> I, I want it i have to i have to Go talk ahead, about this do it. when you know she's you know unzipped a little he's yeah. all ascotted out and like let me tell you he is he has got riz as the kid as the kids oh, say these days i don't know what he's that got means. riz for days um we'll talk off we'll talk off mike but in any event the kids today i don't know um He's looking at all of her medals, and then uh, I think oh, he yeah. says, oh, but you're missing one. It's the medal for good conduct. Good conduct. In my country, there's nothing unusual about that. Women fight side by side with men. I'm sure I've seen at least as much action as you have. Well, I don't... Always. Aquatic air, yes. The Legion of Merit. Seems to be one missing. Which one? The good conduct, Miss. I wouldn't think that was high on your list. <laughs> Tells you a lot about a soldier. Soldier. You have me at a slight disadvantage without your ribbons. Oh, no, I didn't say that you could tell everything about a soldier by looking at his chest. Or hers. And this is their, like, flirting you know kind together of? clearly and she's into it because she was prepping for him but it really plays like a horny six-year-old boy was forced to watch his girl friday and thought he'd try his hand at writing dialogue <laughs> like, <laughs> like yeah, yeah that's it. I, it it's weird in that it's also weird in that it's the kind of sexism that does love women which i know is you know it may not respect them but it's like it's so weird because it it is of this, it almost feels like this, and I know that in reality it, it doesn't work this way, but in the film it, it plays almost as like this naivete, like you're a Ken in right. Barbie. Right. In, you're, you're like Ryan Gosling's Ken from Barbie, and you're just going, oh, hey baby, you want to go ride my motorbike horse? And, and you're like, off, and she's like, yes, I do. Um, except it's for real here. He 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 has got an amazing Mojo Dojo Casa House. He has the best Mojo <laughs> uh, Casa that, House. That's a, one more note about the uniforms that actually made me insane. I I I, I had a, a a brief temporary bout of insanity with this <laughs> this one point. Um, each member of Megaforce wears a patch on his left shoulder, both his dress uniform and his field uniform, showing the flag of the nation that he represents. Ace Hunter has an American flag. Uh, we see, I think, a guy with a Mexican flag. Uh, there's one from Japan. Uh, although the Japanese guy, played by Evan C. Kim, sounds like he's from Fresno. Uh, but then you have 
Dallas. Dallas. Did, Rob, did you notice what flag Dallas had on his shoulder? Yeah, I, and I'm guessing it's not because he was a Dukes of Hazard fan. He no. Has the Confederate flag. The Confederate flag. Oh my God. Oh my God. Like, now listen, I, I just. The it's Confederate not a nation. Battle. It's, it's not, not a, a nation. nation. They it's, lost. It, holy shit. Once I saw that, that was all I could fucking see. I swear to God. Now listen, I get it. To the, to the people out there, I get it. This was the age of Dukes of Hazards and times were different. But you're a military officer and that patch represents the nation you fight for. It is insane to me that it would have like this disgraced, like, you know, like failed nation from 150 years earlier. It's insane to me. Um it really bothered me. Like, like every time I would see it later, it, it, it genuinely upset me. But and it ties into a, a big problem. And, and another one of the reasons why this is not as successful as a literal children's cartoon, G.I. Joe. G.I. Joe, not super long on character and character arcs, right? No, no, no. But it got something down cold that this movie does not, which is that when you have a big team like that, each person needs their thing. Yeah. Now, in this movie, there the idea that maybe the nationality could provide that, because Dallas is like the good old boy wearing a skull shirt who can shoot a snake. Literally, no one else has anything. Yeah, no, no. And, and, and the weird, and I'll say it, they don't even have what would be the appropriate 1980s American racist stereotype about their country. They just literally are given nothing. Yeah. It's like the fact that they have a flag is supposed to differentiate them. One of them should have been the mechanic and you needed them to mechanic at the right part. One of them should have been the bomb guy. One the, of them the, the martial the- arts guy. It, you know, it's, and, and it's, a, you know, I, I never thought about like, oh, well, how well G.I. Joe does that. You know, like it, it's everybody is distinct and their look is distinct. Roadblock is different from Gung Ho, uh, who's obviously different from Snake Eyes, et cetera, et cetera. And I never thought of it before, but like, you know, again, this movie's attitudes towards women compared to G.I. Joe, which had a pretty kind of forward thinking attitude towards women at the time. The, the, there's not as many female characters because it was a toy for, for boys generally, but they did have female characters and they were they were competent military, you know, it's like Scarlet and, and Lady J, you know, they were, they, they knew what they were doing. And the Baroness was like actually a formidable villain at points. She was probably more competent than uh Cobra commander. A lot of the time. Well, most, most, frank. most people are co- more competent than Cobra commander. Don't get me wrong. I love Cobra commander and, and the distinct part of my personality that is Cobra commander, but he's not competent. You know, he's, he's, he's no, insane. no. There's a reason he got Cobra La 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 in, uh, in that later movie. <laughs> <laughs> he deserved it. I am. I was a man. <laughs> I, I. I mean, and I'll say the other thing. I mean, now that we bring up Cobra, it, it's it's about as 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 good of a time uh, to do that as any. Is this movie does not have interesting villains outside of Guerrero? Like the Sardunians are. are sorry. Uh, the the Gamibians are just seemingly incompetent and faceless. There, there's nothing to them. Whereas like Cobra is a really like great concept. Like it's, you know, you, you, the, 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 they're an enemy that is like com- of comparable technology and incredible iconic sense of fashion. And that's what you need for your villains. Yeah. And, and the Cobra, as you said, uh, they're differentiated as villains, right? Zartan, Destro, they're all very different. Yep. 
this movie is more like Thundercats in that you have the Thundercats and then you have Mumra and yep. no one and then else a bunch lives. of guys yeah like who yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and then nothing else um, yeah. but I do love because uh, I know we're getting close I love Duke and Ace's relationship. Oh yes, because the dinner scene that gets explained. There's there's a there's a big day of a big dinner or whatever at the nice rest the nice restaurant at the Megaforce base. Like clearly there's like a cafeteria, but this is the the dining. This is like you know still unlimited breadsticks though. Yes, yeah, no, clearly it's absolutely. Uh, we learn at dinner that Hunter has a personal connection with Guerrera and that they served together for eighteen months before Duke became a mercenary. Greer and I go back quite a long ways. Jump school, counterinsurgency, staff, command, college. We served together for 18 months. Did he? He was decorated twice for valor under fire. And when things got a little shaky in Costa Brava, he was called home to command the crack armor regiment assigned to protect the capital. But he was never allowed to fire a shot politicians to save themselves ordered him to surrender and he had to watch his country die but i saw him again about three years later in nice like all mercenaries in rhodesia he was taking his r and r on the coast du jour he had quite a bankroll he was buying anything that he could get his hands on i spent a few drunken days with him i came that close And why has Duke gone rogue? He was a guy who used to fight for the good guys. And the reason why could also not be more Reagan era. Oh, it's it's so, again, it's so got its finger on the pulse. Guerrera turned mercenary after the politicians forced him to surrender and watch his country die. And there is a very strong recurrent theme in the A's of if we could just get the politicians and bureaucrats out of the way and let the soldiers fight, then everything would be okay. And it's not a coincidence that we see this sensibility a decade after the U.S. involvement in Vietnam comes to an end where the government was viewed as hampering American soldiers or even selling them out. And we see this time and again in in projects ranging from Rambo to the A-Team and Megaforce. But it is interesting, um, you know, just on the... On this level of like you, once this has been going for a few decades, this is the part late seventies into the early eighties, where you really, really start to see it reflected in American pop culture. And this goes all the way back to when we were talking about uh, some of the politics in the Batman movies uh, being more regressive. And, you know, there's this idea that conservative politics can't produce art or can't produce pop art that people like gravitate to. And I know in the case of Megaforce, this, this was not a great hit. But all of the politics in Megaforce were in a lot of the big hits out of the United States, uh, you know, Hollywood machinery, like this whole decade, even by people, uh, you know, artists or whatever, who would probably have very different personal politics, they were still churning out this kind of material. And it's fascinating. Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. 
We are then, after dinner, given an outline of the plan, a not very cleverly codenamed Operation Hook, Line, and Sinker, and it involves Megaforce slipping into Gamibia, attacking Guerrero's forces, and then drawing them back across the Sardunian border where Burn White's tanks will be waiting. And this strategy is laid out, I gotta say, with some very cool holograms. Like, it's a really good, like, the the, the, the the layout of how this plan is going to work is very clear. They're making the plan. Yeah. I mean, this this reminded me of a couple things, this expository scene. A, a the board that they're looking at, it, it feels a little bit Tron. I had the same thing in it, my notes. It feels a little Tron. It feels yeah. a little the, the, the Genesis tape from Star Trek 2. Yeah, yeah. And then it's all on this, you know, holograph board that turns off to be flat afterwards. But while it's on, it looks like all of the Microsoft demonstrations for uh, AR, you know, when they're doing like, oh, put on the AR glasses and you see it, the stuff on the tabletop. And then additionally, the explanation, uh, it's it really is good. Uh, it reminded me of the Top Gun Maverick. Oh, yeah. Explanation before the big, before the before final. The, yeah, like, before gotta, the attack. Like, to, that was really well done. Yes. It's a great bit of exposition where you understand what is supposed to happen. And uh, it's really good. And and uh, then, of course, the unasked question is why it's okay for Megaforce to attack across the Sardunian border, you know, while the Sardunians can't. And and my wife, who watched this movie with me, I, I have to mention, uh, because she is a good sport. Um, what a trooper. She, her answer was, because they're Megaforce, Chris. They could do what they want. That is the correct answer. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh, it's, and then of course the, the 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 hologram bit is undercut after Dallas switches the hologram to a drunk cartoon pig, like yeah, you know, uh, uh, a, a off-brand Porky Pig, very off-brand. And naturally, Major Zara wants to come along on this this expedition, um, but Hunter insists that she pass some of Megaforce trials, like the, the, the fitness tests and stuff. And I say, well, you know, that's fair enough. They're a, they're a daring, highly trained special. No, that's not, that's G.I. Joe again. But, you know, they're, they're trained, um, you know, and, and, you know, so they go and, and do some of the tests that, that consists of skydiving, where the two seem to flirt at 30,000 feet. Oh, my God. Why are these synchronized air acrobatics part of proving you can fight? <laughs> Chris, these are like Olympic dance moves. Is it, this, is not, this is not aerial maneuvers to, like, you know, James Bond, like, dive and kill the skydiver beneath you kind of stuff. It no, is... they were they were really going for synchronized skydiving as an exhibition event in the 84 games, and they didn't get it. No, and this is one of the scenes where you do see the seams quite a bit, um, and that's that's fine. This is not, that's not the problem with this movie. Yeah. No. Yeah. I, you know, that's, I don't, that's not my problem. I don't, Matt lines and that's, I, you know what, hey, if, if, yeah. if the movie is, if the story's good, I don't care as much about like sentiment special effects that don't quite work but that said uh, she pulls his ripcord rob she pulls his ripcord i mean you know there it is there it is and he's got a he's got a rainbow he's got a rainbow parachute yeah and hers is like bright yellow exactly the colors and patterns you would use as a military team in the field um <laughs> Uh, but she also, she's got some piloting to do. There's a piloting simulator that she passes with flying colors. 
But, you know, so he, she well, presumably there are some other tests. I don't know, like you know, push up. So maybe she had to do the rope climb. They're not they're not clear on that. But um, Rob, even though she passes all the tests, does does Ace let her go on the mission? That would be ridiculous. <laughs> Of course not. No, no. She's a girl. She's a girl. Sorry, she'll disrupt the trust and rapport of his men. That's his official word. Um, But really, it's she's a girl. And and if the movie just did that, I might, I wouldn't forgive it, but I'd go, "Eh, I'm not surprised. But this movie doesn't stop there, Chris. Oh, no. It goes one step further. Oh, God. Yeah. Because Hunter tells her, no, you could. My men have trained together. And even though you're great, you suck. And then she goes, I don't like it. But it's what makes you a great leader. It's amazing. Like, like it's it's the worst part of all of this is the lost opportunity for drama. Like he doesn't want her to go. She's the president's daughter. Maybe she could put the she could put the kibosh on it all or pull the strings. But does she? No. She just acquiesces to Hunter because she's a girl. And when she sees Hunter off on the mission, she's smiling like a fucking schoolgirl. It is ridiculous. Like. Rather than having like the, the justifiable anger of a professional soldier who has been denied the opportunity to fight for her country, like she's just smiling and giggling, and it's the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Yeah, their dialogue is so weird, and he's talking about like meeting her at a hotel in London or something. Yes, and then yes, a hotel a in little, London. A little nookie. Yeah. And then you also have the uh, unfortunate thumb kissing the that they do back kiss. and forth. Is that a thing? I've never seen it no. anywhere else. Like you kiss the thumb and then a thumbs. Like I've never, the, I've never seen it. The closest thing is it's like the idiotic version of uh, in Breathless running the thumb over your own <laughs> lips, you know, <laughs> except now you're like God. doing that and kissing and extending the thumb out. Oh God. Um, it's so. This it's... sequence in particular, it was like someone took an AI script and ran it back and forth in Google Translate a thousand times, you know, and then and then we're going to go from, you know, that language to French to German back to English. Let's film it. Uh, <laughs> it's so weird. Holy so shit, weird. though. Those battlefield uniforms are tight. My God, it's... Oh, and the general, when he's watching all the planes leave... Oh, yeah. I am 100% certain those are those are big women's sunglasses. Uh, and not like the Kurt Cobain-wearing kind. These are no, like... the Jackie O. Ja- yeah, yeah. And I, I'm fairly certain that's why the general wasn't allowed to go with Megaforce. They thought he was a little... It was, oh, you're wearing women's sunglasses. We can't possibly well, I mean, have you on the but, mission But, you know, the, the, there's, there's, a, there's a weird undercurrent to all of this. I mean, you have these guys in these skin-tight outfits. I mean, honestly, they should have called it Operation Moose Knuckle. I mean, it's just... <laughs> Oh, <laughs> like what's with the little chest plates that everyone's wearing? Like they're they're all like the size is off. Like they're too small, and so it all looks like they honestly are all going to play photon. Remember the knockoff yeah. laser tag? Uh, like, knock it's like they're tag, all yeah. going to play photon, and I don't know. It's. Uh, uh, on the plane over, the we get some character building scenes, uh, including a bizarre but charming scene between Ace and Dallas. Let me go over it saying one more time, say I got it right. Now we move in as a unit, spearheading up to this point, then Anton and Suki make a flanking movement around here as we continue... 
You might as well have brought her along. We'd have got some work done then. What? Oh. <laughs> you know, I couldn't do that. Couldn't or wouldn't? Didn't. Well, I know how you're feeling. I've been there myself. Let me see. One time before I made a jump into Da Nang, old buddy of mine told me something made me feel a whole lot better. What? What, what, what? What did he tell you? Well, he said, you love them in blue and you love them in red, but most of all, you love them in blue. That's totally inapplicable to anything that's going on here. And it's dumb. Who told you that? You did. But it's very wise. Very wise. Yeah, I thought you'd say something like that. Now, won't you? The quote, that's totally inapplicable to anything that's going on here. Such a weird and wonderful response. But it also implies he understands what the hell Dallas said. Uh, it's amazing. It's, and then, you know, we get guys trying to, regular guy things, like trying to solve Rubik's Cubes and throwing knives about two inches from each other's heads. You know, it's it's the sort of thing that, you know, you do when you have a couple hours to kill. You know? Yeah, just regular stuff. You yeah. Know. You know, and also doing... only the American can solve the Rubik's Cube because <laughs> we know colors. <laughs> we know primary colors oh. and the secondary colors. Uh, you know, French guy, Japanese guy. No, Sorry. Can't. No, you can't possibly. No. 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 Uh, now, they have all these vehicles on these on these two big cargo planes. And and the plan, and I want to talk about physics for a moment. Uh, not long, but but just for a moment, I want to talk about physics uh, because the plan is to drive out the back of these cargo planes and then parachute all the equipment to the ground. Yeah. But the way that happens is insane. The motorcycles in Doombuggy, they drive off the plane. They then stop in midair, deploy the parachute and float gently to the ground. And then immediately start driving again. It is, it is, there is, it, it defies all the laws of physics and logic. All these people should be dead and their vehicles should be a twisted pile of flaming metal. Yeah. And, and this is another sequence where I, I wanted to specifically call out. And, and again, huh, I feel I'm betraying a friend and colleague, Mr. Needham, wherever <laughs> you are, know that I, I mostly love everything that you did. Uh, <laughs> but this sequence, you went, as they're getting ready to come out of the plane where you get all of these static shots of like parts of the bikes and you see like yeah. the little, the little radar dish rotating on the bike and things, right? You're, you're seeing all of the cool stuff. You're going to see all of the toys up close. They're going to have every, everything that like props and set deck collaborated on <laughs> to move on these bikes. You're going to see and Mattel and Mattel and it all looks terrible i mean like the the frame is wrong they're cutting it wrong like they're showing things that move that they shouldn't right and it reminds me of like you know everyone said oh the greatest thing that ever happened to jaws was bruce the shark broke down so spielberg had to hide it a lot more which proved a little more uh you know there was more tension there and it wound up that he had to elevate the filmmaking and here it's just like i feel like they're constantly showing things they shouldn't have shown Right. Um, And vice versa. This is what happens when Bruce the Shark works. Yeah. And then you just shoot like 30 seconds of Bruce the Shark before he falls out of a plane and it just doesn't work. And (laughs) and it even goes that that dinner sequence back that it ends on a two shot with uh, Zara and Ace and Ace is on the right side and Ace talks. A line of Ace dialogue ends that scene. And then you cut to. Ace on the right side of the frame, not much different size-wise. Right. 
And he's also speaking, but in a completely different location. And you're like, that is, if you're doing that in like a, like a Brechtian kind of way where you're breaking film and making a point out of it, it can be good. But if you're doing it in a movie like this, I'm just like, what was going, it just needed, <laughs> it needed such different direction, like on, on every level from like taste level to like technically how you're you're cutting and choosing shots and and what perplexes me is that on both before and after this movie i cannot think of another hal needham movie that has these mistakes in it right look you know he doesn't have to be on the mount rushmore of great american directors no but smoking the bandit and camel run are awesome like it's you know and they're and they're shot in a in a in a dynamic way yes yes and i so i don't understand what happened boy i don't know uh, it's, uh, that said, we get, we get, we get the nighttime raid on Guerrera's camp. Uh, and I'll tell you, there's one thing I loved. I absolutely loved about this sequence because they make a big deal about how they're going to do it in exactly four minutes. And they have a digital countdown clock on the, the, the bottom right of the screen, actually giving the real time countdown. And it's exactly four minutes. I, I gotta say that was that was aces. It's a proto 24, Chris. It, it is. is uh, it is. But it, unlike 24, it actually keeps real time. Oh, for, yes, of course. Uh, <laughs> but like, I, I, I thought that was genuinely great. Uh, there's a weird moment where the Megaforce control vehicle, which, by the way, staffed by one guy played by director Hal Needham. Yeah. Um, and he, uh, there's some villains who are going to come up, some, some Gamibian soldiers, and he promptly vaporizes them. So they they have this they successfully have the nighttime raid and then Guerrera, much to everyone's surprise, flies over to Megaforce's position in a medical chopper and the rest of the team looks on slack jawed as Hunter greets him warmly, very warmly. Yeah, they hug. Yes, and you know, honestly, I gotta say, I, I think there are times in this movie that Barry Boswick is really good, and this is one of them. It's like. There's, you know, Guerrero's like, you hit town and you didn't even call me. And and Hunter gives this sincere, I left you a message. And it's just, it's really good. It's actually a really good bit. Yeah. Uh, And then they proceed to talk about the fucking lighter for like 18 (laughs) minutes before we get back to the actual movie going on. And it's, but again... Look, you could do something. You think of things like in a Tarantino movie where you might sidetrack yourself. Right. And it really is like a a, a super fun character bit. And it's like it adds to the movie and you don't care that you're technically not on the A story at that moment. And here it's like Bostwick and Silva are doing a a decent job, but it's just there's it's just the magic ain't there. Yeah, Uh, I will say that Hunter lights Guerrero's cigar with the Kaniki snap from Greece. Like it snaps in the light. And then... And then Guerrero does wind up with the best line in the entire film. Uh, This is probably, or this is once the general comes in. Yes, because the general comes in and and he's he's got some some news and and essentially Guerrero and them are both there to tell the same thing. Yeah, but when the general comes up, Guerrero has the best line in the whole movie. The very model of a modern major general. I I will say I legit burst out laughing <laughs> because the delivery is perfect. It is. It, it really but no is. One rea- no, one in, no one on screen reacts to it. It's just like, it's literally just 
you got to pick that one up and it's amazing. <laughs> well, the, the news that Burn White is there to tell them is that they've been cut loose by the politicians for crossing into Gambia and violating the territorial integrity of a sovereign nation. And I'm asking myself, wasn't that the whole plan? Like that was the whole plan. And now it's like, well, they thought they could get away with it and it you know, turns and, out and, they couldn't. But after succeeding in their mission, mega forces cut loose and left behind enemy lines. And it's the same basic concept that John Rambo would find himself in, in a few years in Rambo first blood part two. Yeah. It's, it's again, it's got its fingers on the, on the pulse of the zeitgeist but it doesn't know how to execute. But I, I also love this, this twist because I think it shows how they they treat Megaforce and particularly Hunter. So this is, you know, the point, this is your low, low point for your hero in the script. Yeah. In the story, this is going to be the big failure. You know, oftentimes people are like, it looks like all is lost. The all is lost moment, right? How could you go on? Maybe you don't even want to go on. And it happens because they kicked too much ass. <laughs> Literally, you were too much of a badass. That's the per- it's perfect. It's the perfect eighties thing right there. Yes, it is. It is, and because they can't do any wrong, so it's just like they were too good. They were yeah. too good, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, but you know, there, there, there's a plan because the 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 airplanes that that would they would pick them up. The only place they can land is a dried up lake bed that Guerrero's tanks control. But they found a pass through the mountains that will allow them to come in behind Guerrera and break through the line and get to the plains. It's a risky proposition, Rob, but that's the way Megaforce likes it. That's right. <laughs> and and he, that's that's the gist of the final battle is that that you know, it's basically, you know, going across cutting across the mountains and and hitting Guerrera's tanks from behind and then going to the plains. And um you know, again, there's some really good stunt work here. Like there's some good shots. There's some weird stuff. Like when they get past the the line, they release the smoke. Yeah. The rainbow smoke of, from all the different dirt bikes and, and you know, like the colored smoke crossing the lake bed. And I'm like, you know, listen, I don't want to read gay subtext. I'm not one of those people who's going to read gay subtext into everything, but there's a shitload of rainbows in this movie. There is. And, um, you know, it, it is interesting because smoke They can't screen, let the girl come with the boys. No, they can't. But the uh, smoke screen as being an ultimate spy technology was still very in the zeitgeist in the U.S. in, in this era. Yes. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're around the time, too, of uh, what the Spy Hunter video game where that's one of the oh, yeah. powers of the car. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, absolutely. But I know, and this is this is post James Bond, obviously. Obviously. The smoke yes, screen no, yeah. The, it had that. Yeah. It was, that was 20. But it was only 20 years earlier. You know, that the Goldfinger was only about 20 years before that at this point. You know, so it's, it, you know, there you go. And, and you know, but there's there's a complication that one of the planes is so damaged that they it won't be able to land, so they're going to have to leave all the equipment behind. Yeah. But, you know, Ace is not daunted. He even stops to say goodbye to Guerrera and deliver, you know, like he knocks on the top of the tank and, and delivers that iconic, iconic line. The good guys win, even in the 80s. 
It's and then he puts a cigar into Guerrero's mouth. Again, I don't read gay subtext into everything, but holy shit. Yeah, and uh don't worry, fam, if you miss that line, you'll you'll have a chance to catch it again. But oh, we'll yeah. get to that. Oh, yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> but the problem is the whole team has already left Ace Hunter behind because oh, no. he had to go back and powwow with his buddy Duke for a bit. Yeah. Uh, which seems like it was a bad idea. It might have been a bad idea, except except Ace has got an ace up his sleeve. Goddamn right he does. He's going to orgasm his bike <laughs> into that plane. <laughs> yes. He's going he's gonna to work the kegels all the way into the plane. <laughs> Because that's what happens. <laughs> well, that, oh. Now, his motorcycle can fly. Yeah. And and I, I got to admit, they set it up earlier when they're talking to the tech guy, you know, and, and he's like, he's testing the bike for a new feature. And it's just like, it's... His faces, the oh. faces he makes. <laughs> it's amazing. When it's he's a- again, you know, he, he's on a bike in front of whatever that blue screen or projection is. I, I, I just... Oh my God, Chris! It is. If each one could launch a thousand memes, each face, each expression. Oh and my I, God! Yeah, the gifs—they didn't even know it. they were making gifs for the future, but they were. I, I know. It, it was a Skippy Nation back then. Uh, <laughs> Maybe Peter just, Pan. But yes. then you know he makes it to the plane, and then you know, like, and there's that now classic where he sort of springs up from the floor and tosses his hair back and laugh. I'm like, I don't know how many times that get me another as as a social media entity has used that gif of Ace Hunter. You know, <laughs> it's like it's it's one of our you know it's one of it's one of our go to gifs. Um, yeah, and and on the way out, by the way, they blow up uh, Burn White's beloved helicopter because man, that guy's a dick. Yeah, you gotta. Yeah, you gotta, you know, you it, gotta, you gotta just do it. You know, it's it's you gotta. Yeah, it's. Oh, and oh, you forgot to talk about when um when they were busting through the mountain pass to like yep. do the big escape. How Major Zara came back, even though they told her that she couldn't be a part, but she eventually doesn't listen to them and comes back and helps save the day. Rob, that. That didn't happen. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, that doesn't happen. <laughs> doesn't happen. No, doesn't she's happen. a girl. She can't help yeah. them. She couldn't have her Han Solo moment. No way. No, it's the boys. They don't They don't need the and girls. they're back in town. Oh, God damn it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, honestly, the thing about Megaforce to me that is so fascinating is just how close it comes to getting it yeah like it's got its fingers on the pulse and it's just executed so weirdly that it misses the mark it has the fetishization of the military it's got the cartoonish violence without real consequences it's got the high-tech weapons and vehicles i mean you know we're only this is the same year that knight rider premieres and airwolf and blue thunder and street hawk are all around the same time and it's got the theme that the politicians and the bureaucrats, if they just get out of the way, the real soldiers could get things done. It's got a kick-ass end title song, which is fantastic. Complete with uh, end credits where you see stuff from the movie. Yes! Uh, so it's got, which this is how you get people to stick around for the end credits. Give me something, the whole end credits, not just uh, a stinger at the end. Yes. Although this also has the stinger. Also has that, which before, again, ahead <laughs> yes. of its time. Um, honestly, the only way Megaforce could have hit more cultural touchstones is if it had ninjas, Rob. Which I'm sure would have been in the sequel. Yeah, because they are technically soldiers of fortune. Yeah. Yeah, 
But honestly, the, the Megaforce ninjas are probably like dressed in houndstooth or something. Like it's like they're going to yeah. get it wrong. Uh, but no, no, they're dressed in spandex that has a houndstooth pattern. Uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, and, or and maybe there it's was, Lycra. I don't know. There, there was a plan for sequels. They did not just want to make one Megaforce movie. Barry Bostwick had a three-picture deal. And apparently the sequel would have involved a Caribbean setting with all sorts of water vehicles. And I have two words for you, Rob. Jet skis. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Motorbikes are the single greatest advantage you can have in a land war. So at Battle at Sea, it would be jet skis. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. and uh, I mean, there's no question in my mind that Guerrero would have teamed up with Megaforce for the second film. I mean, they almost team up in this movie... But, like, I, I, I guarantee you the second movie would have involved Guerrera switching sides and becoming part of Megaforce. I am certain. Yeah, and, and the villain would have been, like, you know, some fake, thinly veiled Fidel Castro or something. Yeah. So that you, you know, I mean, not you, the obvious thing, which would be an anti-Megaforce, would be, you know, like, that's the... the is like like an international evil international organization you know possibly snake themed whoa 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 evil uh you mean an international cooperative designed to take down these fascists <laughs> who are tracking everyone in a black box operation that the public isn't even aware of honestly megaforce in all seriousness someone needs to take down megaforce <laughs> yes, they need to go away. No, it's and, 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 uh, I, they're I, essentially I, the Wagner Group. <laughs> Ace Hunter should not get out of any planes. Any don't get out no, of any commercial no. planes, man. Um, I, I've never, I, Rob, I, I don't think I've ever encountered a movie that's so connected to what was in the zeitgeist in that particular moment, and yet missed the mark. So wide. It it's like it's like this movie was made by someone from another dimension, peering through the void and observing what was happening in the culture of the early 80s, and then tried to make a movie of it back in his own dimension. But like, as in Plato's analogy of the cave, they could only see the shadows on the wall. So they had the shapes right, but nothing else. Like it's it's not inconceivable that had this movie been just made a little different that it could have been a huge hit and an era-defining hit. Like, it's all of the elements are there. The DNA is there, but it, it you know, uh, it, it, it hit some risk factors along the way and it didn't develop as it could have. Uh, it's so weird. Cause I also want to say, because I've been, I've been mercilessly bagging on this movie <laughs> pretty much the whole time here, which it, I, I hope is not... I don't believe is my normal MO (laughs) and it was not completely unenjoyable for me to watch. No, I I mean, we've watched worse movies on this show quite recently. For sure. For sure. And so I just want to make a culpa. I I don't know exactly. I'll never be able to tell, you know, I I tend to not go this way, but I just, I felt like Tom Servo all of a sudden. And like, I try (laughs) not to do that. And I, I literally, I, I wrote, 
some of the notes and I was like, oh, this is like, it's a little too Tom Servo. And then I was like, I shouldn't do it. That's not what I like to do. And I was like, but I must. It was like, <laughs> it was like, uh, you know, I, I've, I'd gotten hooked on heroin and I just couldn't like, I needed one more hit, Chris. Just <laughs> It says, does that make me crow or more likely gypsy? I think uh, Joel, uh, I think you're Joel. Why not? Uh, you know, it's, yeah. Um, anyway, that's Megaforce. Uh, it, it was not the hit they wanted to be. I, it could have been. Maybe there's an alternate universe out there where it was, where kids are, you know, you're on your third Megaforce reboot by now. And, you know, who knows? You know, it's uh, yeah, Megaforce. The, the triple franchise hits of the 80s, Megaforce, Metal Storm, and Space Hunter 3D. All spot, like they're all in the reboot phase now. Yeah. And they're, yeah. they're big budget TV remakes. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, I gotta say, I, I've really enjoyed both of the don't get me another episodes that we've done. I promise we, if you've enjoyed them, we have plans to do more. Uh, but before that, we are gearing up for our next Get Me Another series in which we'll be diving into the mysterious and strange world of Italian giallo films with Get Me Another Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Uh, Rob, it is going to be a fantastic series. Uh, I'm so excited for it. Yeah, I, I wanted to, uh, and I hate to take care of this bit of business uh, in front of everyone, but um, I just want to make sure, you know, I feel like we need to add a movie onto this list. I want to make sure there's one where the killer is stalking literal models. And I, you know, I know it could be hard to find that it could be hard to find, but I just, we have to, I just, I like that. And I, I it'll, think it it, we'll get there. I promise we'll yeah. find it. I promise we'll find it. Uh, yeah, it's going to be a fascinating series. We have some terrific guests lined up, and it will give us a chance to explore a, a wave of films that was made outside of the Hollywood studio system. So uh, get me another bird with the crystal plumage. We'll begin in two weeks on October 3rd, and I promise you, you do not want to miss it. Again, thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter, Instagram and threads at Get Me Another Pod. And remember, if you like the show, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell that one guy you spent a drunken weekend with in the south of France who's a little bit of both. And join us next time as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, Get Me Another. <laughs>
I just wanted to say goodbye and remind you that the good guys always win, even in the 80s. See you, Duke.